from the book of Exodus, God said, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. We are continuing our series in Exodus, this wilderness journey that we've been talking about where God is using this time to form the Israelites into His people. And one of the ways that He's doing so is He's revealing Himself to them so that they can have a real relationship with God. And so this morning what we're doing is we're going to be checking in on the Israelites to kind of see how they're coming along in this process. You know, so far they've complained about bitter water, so God had the water sweetened. And then as we saw last week, they grumbled about food, so God provided quail and manna. But now they're thirsty once again. And as we'll see in our text, their tone has shifted. Now there's a hard edge to their complaint. And rather having this posture of hopefulness, rather than growing in faith or reciprocating God's love, they are further hardening their hearts against Him. So, what is God to do? What is God to do with these people? Well, we have two points for today. The first point is the exorcism of Egypt, and the second point is the trial of God. So, the exorcism of Egypt and the trial of God. Point one, the exorcism of Egypt. So, I'll be honest, I had actually, I had originally titled this point, uh, Exercising Egypt, but I had this, do you ever have those images flashed in your mind? I had this image of Richard Simmons jogging in front of a pyramid, and I was like, we're not, we're not doing that. Um, the, the, the point is going to be the exorcism of Egypt. But what does it mean for the Israelites to exorcise or to cast out Egypt? Hadn't God saved them from Pharaoh weeks ago? I think by some people's estimations, it's been like 47 days, so that, you know, slavery was behind them. Well, yes and no. You know, because it's, as it's been said, you can take a person out of slavery in a second, but you can only take slavery out of a person through a process. And here's what I mean. When you're under the heels of a tyrant, of a loveless tyrant, your beliefs about the world begin to change. Altruism, mercy, love… These are fairy tales. Soon, everyone has an ulterior motive, just like you, with a heart hardened by cynicism. This is what it is to live under a tyranny. Under a loveless tyranny, your behavior can change too. As you find yourself doing whatever it takes, becoming whoever you need to be to survive. For example, and we've seen this, right? We've seen plenty of tyrannies in the 20th century. Under a tyrant, everyone becomes an informant. Else someone informs on you first, and you've missed the chance to ingratiate yourselves with the authorities, to be a member of the party, even if the party is the one oppressing you too. As we've mentioned, how else did the Pharaoh hear? Remember when Moses killed the Egyptian who was you know, oppressing his own people? And then what did his people go around and do? They informed on him. Right, right back to the authorities, because they've been living under a tyranny. This is what you do. You also, under tyranny, learn to lie. As Solzhenitsyn wrote of life under the tyranny of the Bolsheviks, he said, if you want to survive, lie. Lie and pretend. In place of all the good that was dying away, in gratitude, mark that, 
cruelty and a thoroughly rude, self-centered ambition now rose and established themselves among the people. Under, your, under a tyranny, your beliefs about goodness, about how the world could be, even about God begin to change, and your behavior changes to match. Your heart becomes hardened. And if you were born into this, as were all the Israelites after 400 years of slavery, you had never known any different. This is what life was. When I was in the uh, children's uh, counseling program uh, at seminary this past year, we learned of a girl named Katie. We were introduced to Katie. And Katie was born into, uh, she, was, she was one of those girls that was born into extreme poverty. She had a teenage mother um, who was uh, dating this guy named Mike, and she wanted to keep Mike around, you know, so she decided the best way to do that was to become pregnant, you know, and then maybe they'd form this happy family and everyone would get along. Um, but Mike had zero interest in being a father. He barely had interest in being a boyfriend, and she was uh, young and unexperienced. Uh, as an infant, Katie was always cold. As an infant, Katie was always underfed. As an, as an infant, Katie was, was rarely interacted with by anyone. When she would cry, she would be screamed at or hit by Mike. At 18 months old, her own mother got so frustrated with her that in a moment of desperation, she chucked Katie across the room and Katie ended up breaking her leg. And it was that moment that Katie's mom lost any interest in her and completely detached from Katie emotionally. You know, eventually, as she got older, Katie stopped crying altogether. When she was hungry, she stole. When Mike was angry, she lied and she hid. She learned how to get her revenge, though, through tantrums and destroying objects around the house. And when she was punished, she felt this odd mix of resentment, of indifference, but also a bit of pleasure. Because it was in those moments that she felt like she had control. After all, she was the one that caused her parents to be that angry. She finally entered protective, uh, protective services after Mike, her father, when she was five, wiped Katie's face in the milk that she had spilt, beat her, and then relieved himself on her in front of a neighbor who ran out and called protective services. The problem with Katie, though, is that her rage followed her into each foster home, as did her behavior. Oh, unknowingly to herself, she set out to confirm her expectations that no one could or would meet her needs. She set out to get the next rejection out of the way sooner rather than later so as not to be disappointed. She set out to prove her own internalized sense of worthlessness. And she set out to maintain control by getting others angry, the only response she knew that she could manufacture herself. And so Katie, despite the best efforts of some truly loving foster parents, went through home and home after home after home. Because what do you do with somebody like Katie? How do you rehabilitate somebody like Katie? How do you soften a hard heart like Katie's? Well, in our text for today, the Israelites, who have only known slavery, have been following God's pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night for weeks. He has been present with them. He has provided for them, but now there's no water for a moment. Which, you know, obviously, when you're setting up camp, right, you have kids that are thirsty, you have animals that are thirsty, you're thirsty, you're tired, you've been trudging through the desert, right? Like, water would be nice, um, 
You know, they're, they're grumbling for a reason. But, but, but they don't just grumble here. Their, their tone has shifted. I want you to notice their response. Despite the fact that God has been there with them, and they still have no faith in God, they have no hope that He will come through, and they certainly have no love for God. And this time, they don't merely grumble. The word here in, in Hebrew, quarrel, is the word for filing a formal complaint. They're no longer just grumbling. They're filing charges. They're demanding that somebody stand trial for their treatment. And that's why you see, you see Moses' response in the text today. He's not doing what he had done before, which is kind of taking God's side and saying, you know, hey, everybody, calm down. God's got this. He's in a panic. He's genuinely concerned that he's about to receive the death penalty for a trial for, what, gross negligence, manslaughter on a massive scale, right? That's what he's being charged with. And so he cries out to the Lord for help because the situation has become genuinely dangerous. And he says, Lord, what do we do? So put yourself in that situation for a second. Put yourself in God's situation for that second. Let me ask you this. Think of, think of all the authority figures that you've encountered in your life, the ones that have had the greatest impact. If they were placed in that situation, what would their response be? Imagine that the authority figures you've experienced in your life have proven themselves to you again and again and again, and your response to them is to shoot their messenger or to file formal charges against them. How would they respond? Now, with that response, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard their voice in what you believed to be God's mouth? that God's response to you would be the same as theirs. Maybe this person that you're thinking of, this authority figure, had been punitive, degrading, prone to outbursts. Is that what you imagined God's voice to you was ever like? Or on the other side, what if the authority figure you're thinking of has been distant or uncaring or weaponizing silence or punishing you by withholding affection? Is that what you've imagined God's voice to be like? Is that the image of God that you've had instilled in you by someone else? You know, God calls Himself Father, and He does so intentionally. He does so because that's who He is. He is our Father. But that image can get confused with the experiences that we have of either our own fathers, or even if our fathers were good, with other authority figures we've encountered, because let's be honest, at this stage in life, most of us have at some point in the past encountered working under a petty tyrant, haven't we? I can tell you some stories about some foremen. And if you don't know God, how easy is it to confuse His voice with the others, to imagine that He's speaking to you when it's really someone else? especially, by the way, for those who aren't yet believers, who only have the barest idea of what an all-powerful God might be like. And I'm convinced that this is a stumbling block for a lot of people who exhibit no interest in religion and pursuing a relationship with God. Consider someone like Katie. If Mike was an authority, if that's the authority that she knew, and God is the ultimate authority, well, what must God be like then? Better to dismiss or even rage against God right? Because this injustice that we, that we witness in the world must be a direct result of His punishment, right? If bad things happen to me, it must be because God is punitive. That's how it would be interpreted. If there's no water, it must be because God is this punitive, capricious, or uncaring God, right? 
So let's harden our hearts and get this rejection out of the way. Let's prove to God our internalized sense of worthlessness, and let's take back control and elicit the reaction that we know that we can get. That's the situation that they're in. And so, as Moses asked God, what are we to do with these people? It's a good question. What do you do with a people like Katie, who have never known altruism or mercy or love from those who are supposed to care for or protect them? How do you enter into a relationship and prove that you have no ulterior motive to a people who have no idea what trust is? Do you have any idea how many people when they hear an invitation from church or to come to church think you just want my money? How do you show them who God is? How do you show them that their very behaviors that they felt they needed to survive, namely lying, stealing, and suspicion, the ones that they thought they needed to survive and thrive in the world, would actually no longer serve them, but would in fact be detrimental to the very type of relationship that could help save them? How do you show them this? How do you exercise Egypt? How do you get rid of this image of the Pharaoh that's been implanted in their hearts and soften their hard hearts instead? Well, that brings us to our second point, the trial of God. In our text, God tells Moses, take your staff, the sign of your authority as judge, and gather the jury of elders. Pass before the people as they will be witnesses, and I I will stand before you on the rock. What's God's response to their demand for a trial? God puts himself on trial. God assembles a courtroom. In the ancient world, civil and criminal matters would be decided at the city gates. If you had some dispute or something that needed to be resolved, you would gather the elders of the people, you would sit at the gates, you would gather people as your witnesses, and you would make your case. They want a trial, and God gives them a trial. But here he doesn't take his rightful place as judge. Instead, he gives that role to Moses. Here, he takes his stand on the rock as the one accused. And then God says, now strike the rock. In your insecurities, in your misplaced rage, and the cynicism of your hard hearts, you may rail against me, you may even strike me, but I will love you and I will provide for you. So Moses strikes the rock, and water flows, and they drink. And I think this brings to mind for us as Christians another image. There was a time after this that Ezekiel would prophesy that God would come and sprinkle clean water on our hearts and cleanse us, that God would come and remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. When God himself would come in the flesh, answer his accusers not a word, and climb on the hard wood of the cross for our sakes. And when he is struck, from his side would flow the blood of this Eucharist that we are to receive and the water of baptism that would make us his, and reshape our beliefs about the, how the world could be, reshape our beliefs about God and the truth of altruism and mercy and genuine love. And it's to this image, the cross of Christ, that we turn whenever we feel our hearts become hardened again by this world. Whenever we start to imagine, again, 
that we have to become a certain type of person to survive or thrive in this world, that we have to become a people who lie or betray or take shortcuts or generally harden our hearts against the difficulty of this world. It's then that we as the people of the cross look back to the cross, the mercy of God, His love and provision for us that is on full display. He doesn't hide from us who He is. That is why we are people of the cross. That's why we display it in worship. That's why we wear it around our necks. That's why we put it in our homes. It's a reminder for us not to harden our hearts in the face of God's love and mercy, to remind us of the true nature of this world and the God who made it so that we may be offered new life in Him. After Katie's fourth foster home, she was placed with a woman named Jackie. And true to form, uh, Katie lied and manipulated to get what she wanted. Jackie tried to set up this reward system for good behavior, and when Katie wanted something, right, she, she behaved well. When she didn't, she didn't care a bit about the reward system. Whenever Katie began to feel loved, uh, there was one moment where they just had a wonderful outing as mother and daughter, and Katie didn't know what to do with the love that she received, and so she guarded against it by taking a rock and scratching the side all the way up Jackie's car, because that's what she knew. There's another moment before Thanksgiving where there's a lot of love in the house, and so what Katie did is she, she reached into the garbage, she took garbage out and stuffed the turkey with garbage, with actual trash, in order to sabotage the meal. And there were moments and moments like this that carried on for months. But Jackie persisted. Instead of the chaos of Katie's former life, Jackie offered a predictable environment with clear and fair consequences. She fostered Katie's own internal self-motivation to change. She offered steady, self-sacrificial love and she remained with her every day until the image of her past parents left her heart and the image of Jackie's love was instilled instead, that it was normalized and internalized and carried within. And Katie, against all odds, went on to lead a normal and happy life. She's currently a biologist, by the way, which is pretty great. You see, this and much more is God's desire for us. God offers us by His commandments a predictable environment with clear and fair consequences. We know where we stand with God. We know what He asks of us. He's perfectly clear with us. He calls us to live as Christ, to bring Christ into the world, and He stirs up our internal self-motivation, right? He's like, you know, he, he calls us to bring His image forth into the world, and He promises to be present with us even into the end of the age. The God of love who revealed Himself to us on the cross who softens our hard hearts so that we may receive His love and bear His image to the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Your grace and mercy to us is beyond anything that we could hope to expect. God, when we stray, when our hearts become hardened, when we look too long at the world and how it can function, when we start to decide that you know, we must be hard in order to, to make it, to survive or to thrive, you are the one who continually points us back to yourself to soften the hearts that you have given us, to strengthen us to be the people who can love in the face of difficulty and adversity. 
Lord, you as our Father redeem the image of what it means to be a Father, what it means to be an authority. You reshape that reality for us. So God, I pray that as we continue on, that we would continually look back toward the cross and your demonstration of love and enter into fully a relationship with you by your grace and mercy. It's your son Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.